Son. So we're moving to the end of Ecclesiastes, and one of the themes of the second half of the book is it wants to help you learn how to live well in light of all the things you don't know. And one of the processes of growing in wisdom is you begin to learn all of the things you don't know. So it's kind of like when you're in third grade, you know everything, and it only gets worse as you become a teenager, and then you actually really do think, see, at least in third grade, you think, well, all the things I don't know, mommy does know, so I'll ask the ultimate authority. And then by the time you're 13, you think you know everything and mommy knows nothing. And so then it just kind of devolves from there. But as you get older, you begin to learn all the things you don't know. No, it's kind of like you know the most about marriage before you get married. You know the most about raising children before you actually have any. And one of the paths of wisdom in the second half of Ecclesiastes is to help you deal with the reality of just all the things you're, you just don't know. And you can even hear that four times in this, this section. It's you don't know. You know not what disaster will come. You know not the way you know not which will prosper. There's so many things you don't know. But then what he wants to do here is give us four pictures that will help you live well in the light of all the things you don't know. And so let's look at the first picture. first picture we'll call uh, feeding the ducks. Feeding the ducks. So kids, you you love to take your bread. You love to feed the ducks. Listen, it says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. And so here's this image um, basically of taking bread and kind of casting it out uh, generously on the waters. This actually is the image in the light of all the things we don't know. This is a call to be open and generous. And it's an interesting little phrase. Notice it says, cast your bread upon the waters because you'll find it again after many days. That's kind of strange. What's he talking about? Is it kind of like, all right, I, ha- I got a piece of pound cake for Thanksgiving, and I don't want my siblings to have it, so I'm going to hide it in the lake, and I'm going to come back three days later, and it's going to be there? It might still be there, but I don't know if you want to eat it. The image here actually is taking the, because he's already told us about bread, and bread uh, all throughout the book is one of God's good gifts to you to enjoy. And what he's doing is he's turning it and saying that good gift from God, that, that gift that sustains you in life, you then turn and be generous with it. You spread it around. And there's a whole bunch of just kind of applications that can uh, flow from this. It, it's, it's a call to be generous with the things Uh, you have and care about the needs of those around you. You know, one of the challenges in our world is we often actually love ducks more than we love people. And one of the calls here is to, you know, love the people around you more than you love the ducks. But it's also the call to give some of the basics that you have back. It's also an interesting metaphor because it actually uh, is also a reference for wise investing with the things you have. Uh, the image of ships throughout uh, the wisdom literature, you'll hear it talk about the ships of Tarshish. And these are the uh, uh, trading ships who would then take investments, take them out into the world and try and bring uh, profit. So it's talking about why, being wise and both generous. What he's saying, you, you don't know how life's going to turn out, so when you have the opportunity to be generous. But notice it's fascinating. He doesn't say just kind of fling the bread indiscriminately. 
we actually went to one of the lakes here in the neighborhood, and we were feeding, trying to feed the fish with our bread, and there were no fish. So we just took the bread off and just kind of throw it. So we actually didn't feed the fish. We just littered. And that's not what's being advocated here either. Because he's saying, look, give a portion to seven or even to eight. So you don't just kind of fling it. You have intentional direction it's going to go. So it's, so it's not... Um, gratuitous, but it's also intentional, but it's also not miserly. So it's thoughtful, intelligent generosity. Some limitations, but still lavish. Let's look at the next image in verse 2. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What he's saying here, in the life, in, in the light uh, of all the things we don't know, there's so many things you don't know, um, like the weather. You actually don't know the weather, but you can tell in general what it's going to be like. This is actually a call to wise action and preparation. So it says, look at the clouds. When the clouds look like this, there's a good chance it's going to rain. So you could say, well, we don't know. We don't know if it's going to rain. We don't know. Um, you say, well, maybe you should get your umbrella and at least make plans. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling you, you can't know everything, but you can know enough so you can make plans. Actually, this, this little image here is trying to help us not use our the things we don't know to become an excuse for the things we don't do. You know how easy it is in life to let the things we don't know become an excuse for the things that we don't do. And what he wants to say here is, of course, there's so many things you don't know, but you can know enough where you can at least make preparations. The one who just observes the wind will not sow, who looks around and says, oh, who knows if it's going to win rain, I'll just stay in. This is a call to wise action. Notice the next thing, and this is an interesting image in verse 5. The third picture is, and you do not know the way the spirit comes into the bones of the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And then there's an interesting connection. It's kind of hard. Are these, are these two separate images or are there a connection with verse 6? Look at verse uh, 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What it's saying is there's something you don't know that actually should cause you to marvel. You don't know how life gets poured into a child, but then there's still some things that you can do in the morning and in the evening. I thought it'd be really cool. One of the things I wanted to do, I kind of wrestled with this, is I wanted to show a little clip. So write this down, parents, and you can go look on this on YouTube. But it's a little TED Talk that was given in 2011 by uh, Alexander Tassaris. And uh, they did this project uh, called From Conception to Birth. And so he, uh, they had this team to do advanced digital imaging where they were trying to trace at a cellular level like what happens from conception to birth. And you can actually watch some of the digital imaging, and it is phenomenal. It is unbelievable. And uh, I thought about showing it, but then I thought, you know, it's from conception to birth, so it could have caused some awkward conversations um, on the way home. But one of the things that's so fascinating as he's looking at, because when you look at, and they try to like um, do the imaging of what happens for the tissue uh, to become kind of just 
tissue that gets turned into a functional heart in eight weeks. And the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of transformations at the cellular level where these tissues turn into this functioning heart. And it's amazing. And as he's watching it, uh, he has a moment of wonder where he doesn't know how to process that. He says, from like a mathematical standpoint, we don't have anything in the world that can compare to that type of transformation. So I don't know what you call it. I mean, you call it magic. You call it miracle. Do you call it divinity? But we actually have no concepts to even understand the mystery and the beauty and the, the miracle of the movement from conception to birth. And one of the things the writer here who wants you to stand in awe, to see that, that what it takes to, to, to become alive is awe-inspiring. He says, you have no idea how all of that works. But then there's an interesting thing in verse 6, but he says, but in the morning... There's actually work for you to do. And it's interesting. Is he turning to a farming metaphor or staying with the child? In the morning, you know, there's activity. Don't withhold your hand in the evening. And one of the things I think this picture is doing is saying, even if you don't know all of the complexities that's going on to form that child, once that child comes, there are some things you do know to do. Like, you'll know you need to feed it need to change it. There are some things you can know. And what it does is it puts here a picture of beautiful balance in life. That there's morning activities and there's evening activities. There's morning task of going outside, sowing your seed, doing your work. There's evening task of resting, rejoicing, kind of inside work. I think one of the just challenges in our world is understanding the dynamic between like the morning activities of physical activity and then the evening activities of kind of thought and relational connection. You know, for example, you know, you'll have to kind of work out what wisdom looks like in your own life so you can have a healthy balance. So, for example, if you're a knowledge worker where most of your work is, in essence, evening activities, you have to figure out how to get healthy rhythms of morning work. You're being outside. You're being active. But notice what it says in one six, in 6. There's so many things you don't know. You don't know what will prosper, what will succeed. So do many different things. Don't get yourself so locked into one thing so you cut off all your other opportunities. Do work in the morning. Work in the, it's a call to wise, healthy balance. And then I love verse 7. This final image, this image is an image to go outside. Light is sweet. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And it's beautiful, just kind of four pictures of what it looks like in the midst of a world where there's so many things you don't know or understand. It says, here's just four things you can do to enjoy life. Become generous with what you have. Uh, marvel at these things. And then just go outside. And I wonder also if there's ever been a younger generation that needs the call of verse 7 more than some of you. Go outside. I was listening to a podcast this week where a guy from the UK was promoting his book on the, uh, the health of just walking, which is how healthy it is to just get outside and walk. And he shared a statistic that in the, in the United Kingdom, um, prisoners spend more time outside than school-age children. And surely there's something off about that. Just get outside. And one of the beauties about all of these things is these aren't just a pathway to how you can live well physically. They also open up a window in how you can live well spiritually and how you can be transformed. Because notice verse 7. 
Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. But one of the themes through all of Ecclesiastes is there's a way to live under the sun, S-U-N, and the way to live under the sun, S-O-N. And it's not just good for your body to see the physical sun. It's good for your soul to have your eyes on the spiritual sun, on God's sun, on Christ. You know, he is the light of the world. And it's the pure in heart who are going to see him. And one of the great gifts of the gospel is it'll actually transform all of these physical gifts to bring spiritual blessings and benefits. I mean, for example, the reason why we can be generous and cast our bread on the waters generously is because of the generosity we have received. Because we actually have been transformed for one who didn't hold on to his bread and think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. But he intentionally made himself poor, so he cast it to us so that we then could be made rich. And if you think it's a miracle that you, like all of the cellular transformation that took to get your body here the first time, that's nothing compared to the miracle of the new birth, the second birth, to be born again. So if you're a Christian, you're actually the recipient of two miracles, the miracle of creation and the miracle of recreation. You know, my preaching professor at RTS, Steve Brown, used to say, uh, if you see a dog playing checkers, you don't criticize his game. You're just amazed he's playing. And if you think about it, every single one of it, if you're a Christian, what's happened to you is more miraculous than a dog playing checkers. Like if you saw a little dog come hopping up here, a little Maggie, and she popped up and whipped out a checkered board and start moving her checkers and asked me to play a game, I wouldn't start critiquing like, you really going to move there? That's how you're starting? Hmm, I don't want to think about that one. You'd be amazed. She's just playing. And every single one of us as Christians, the fact that we've been transformed, it's a miracle that we're even here. And one of the things that Ecclesiastes wants to do is help you to pause and enter into that miracle. So that's four pictures to help you live well. But then it's going to give you three practices for you to live by. That if you're going to work these things into your life, you have to do these three things. And notice verse 9 of chapter 11, 10, and verse 1 of chapter 12. Threefold call. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And then verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. And then chapter 12, verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And so you know how, if you've been around Trinity a while or at least heard me preaching, you know how much it makes my heart happy to see those three R's in order. Rejoice, remove, remember. It's like a sermon just structure just laid out on a plate beautifully. And we have to pass over it. I got two minutes to talk about those three beautiful things. But those three practices, if you want to live in the light of these things, you've got to rejoice, remove, remember. This is the seventh call throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to rejoice. Seven times it's called us to rejoice. Rejoice in the, the food that you've been given. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in your work. And then there's this two things that come back to back that really give you kind of the divine two-step if you're going to live a life of joy, um, if you're going to live well, you need to constantly be, uh, be rejoicing and removing. Rejoicing and removing. This is really the two-step of faithful living. There's things you need to rejoice in and love and cherish and try and cultivate. And then there's characteristics, things in your life that you have to constantly be weeding out and removing. 
you have the Puritans who have written the best on this, use the words mortification and vivification. And we'll use other words because nobody knows what that means. But the concept is there's certain things in your life where you have to mortify, you have to put to death, you have to take off, you have to kill. And then there's things, characteristics in your life you want to bring to life. And I've found just in my own heart, my own growth and own parenting, there's few things that help give me categories and bearings for how to parent like these two things. I want to cultivate in my own heart and my children things. They rejoice in the good and they're removing the wicked, the evil. They're pulling out. So even think about like the fruits of the spirit. Those are things we want to rejoice in. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We want these to mark us. But you have to not only cultivate those, you have to remove their opposites or the things that are going to attack them. Or there's things you have to remove uh, if you're going to be happy. Like you, so think about your own life. All right, if I'm actually going to do those four things that we saw, are there certain things that need to be removed? And then do, what needs to, it needs to be replaced that I can rejoice in? So maybe you need to remove the tendency to always be blaming and pointing a finger at another and replace that with taking ownership. Or remove the snark and replace it with gratitude. Or what needs to be removed so kindness can grow. And then you remember, verse 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And that we're going to skip this whole next section from 12.1 all the way to 12.8. But this is such a beautiful passage that can help us deal with uh, aging. You know, we live in a wo- culture and a world that does not know how to age well. You know, J.I. Packer joked, you know, he's 93 and kind of losing his, um, his ability to see and, and other things. And he says, you know, aging is not for the faint of heart. And this gives you a wonderful perspective on that. But remember, when it says, remember the creator in the days of your youth, that's not talking about childhood. It's not talking about adolescence. It's talking about in all the days of your activity before your body is completely breaking down. It's really talking about that season of life really between about 30 and 60 those are the days of your youth. You know, there's a reason, like in Israel, you, w- you wouldn't be allowed to take on any public office of leadership till you were 30. There's some debates about when was the earliest people could be in the, in the Old Testament be allowed to be elders in the community. Some scholars think it was probably about the age 40 before they were allowed to be elders. Now, let's move on and look at the two presents, to live by the two presents. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and they are like nails firmly fixed, and they are the collected sayings, and they're given by one shepherd. This actually is a remarkable um, passage that he, he, the preacher here, Solomon, is actually giving you his thought process and how he constructed this book. And there's two gifts that the Word gives us if we're going to live well and do these things. It's the gift of pleasure and it's the gift of pain. These words should bring pleasure and they should bring pain. But the first thing is notice the, the words in verse 10, words of delight. They're beautiful they have, notice what he says, they weighed and studied and arranged. They were words that were intentionally constructed with logical clarity, then literary artistry, and then intellectual integrity. So they all correspond. And I think one of the, the most, 
beautiful things, and this is the things we want for our children, we want it for us, is not just to know the Bible, but to be in awe of it and to love it and have its beauty captivate you. To see its order and its structure as we were going in the men's and women's Bible studies just back through Genesis. And I was amazed again at the, the order and the intentionality and the structure. We're going to move next week, start a long series through the Gospel of Matthew. And there's no book in the New Testament that compares to Matthew and the intentional arrangement and order and structure. And when you see all these things, it's beautiful. You know, when you see the great narrative arc of how Christ fulfills and anticipates all of these things from the whole scope of Scripture, it's beautiful. I actually learned a fun fact this week from C.S. Lewis that there's an uh, etymological connection in the words uh, where we get cosmetology and uh, cosmetics. So, you know, cosmetics, cosmetology, it actually comes from cosmos, the word, uh, the world. And part of what cosmetics and cosmetology is meant to do is to bring out the order and the structure of what's been created. So you can see the beauty and see the order and structure. And so it's these words that bring order to disorder. And we all know that there's, there's no beauty in disorder. You think about just people whose lives are a mess, who live for themselves, their relationships are disordered and destructive or emotionally chaotic, but the word is the gift of beauty, and part of that beauty is structure and order. But notice the next thing it does is these words of the wives are like goads. They poke you. They keep you. They keep you on track. They give you a little poke when you're veering off. You know, one of the things, I'm not a big fan of uh, large crowds, hot sun, and places that are really expensive. So my anxiety rises when we go to places like Disney. It's not necessarily the happiest place on earth for me. And I have this fear like, wait, go, because we got four little kids and they're kind of all over the place. And I have this panic that like, I am going to lose them one day. And so if you've ever seen like, the, I am all for 100% like the leashes. So if you ever look and see the parents that have the, the kids on the leashes and you're like, you judge them. I don't judge them. I understand them. Because you know, you got these kids and they're just walking along and they're walking and they see like this sucker that's the size of their head. And they're like, whoa. And it just attracts them like, and I know I'm just going to lose them. And so I like need some type of like cattle prod just to come on, psh, psh, stay, come on, we're walking, we're going to stay in line. And actually that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to be that for us. He says it's meant to kind of goad you along. So when you start getting off center and like, wow, and thinking things like when you're tempted to think that lasting satisfaction can come through my own accomplishments and my own pleasure and money can bring these things for you, it can kind of, nope, come on, stay on the path. When you're tempted to fall into a foolish rage or mocking laughter, it can goad you to stay on the path. When you're tempted to fly through life thinking you're immortal, it can goad you to stay on the path. When you're tempted to boast over your accomplishments as if you did it all and have it all and accomplished it all, it can just goad you back on the path. And then another thing that these things are is they're not like nails firmly fixed. And that's one of the great gifts of the Bible is it can kind of give you intellectual clarity. It can give you nails that are just firmly fixed that you can hang your life on. 
It's one of the beauties when we're going through the, new t- uh, the Lord's Prayer. Every single one of those phrases are like nails firmly fixed that can shape your life. Why do we want to be a church that's God-centered? What are the three things in the very beginning? Want to hallow his name and worship, expand his kingdom and mission, and do his will in faithful discipleship. Those are the nails that we hang everything on. Worship, mission, discipleship. What does it mean to be a generous people? You share your bread. You forgive one another as you've been forgiven. And then you're not led into temptation. These are kind of nails that you can fix your life on. And these two gifts, both pleasure and pain aren't just gifts, but they're great tests for us. You know, do you find pleasure in the Bible? Do you see it beautiful? Or do you find any pain? Do you see it pricking you in ways that make you uncomfortable? And then let's look at this last thing. This sums up the whole, this one point. This is the summary of the whole book, starting in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. Any med students want to give an amen to that? Much study is weariness to the flesh. Here's the end of the matter. Here's the summary. Here's the punchline. Here's the point. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every single thing, every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is it. This is a summary of the whole book. This is the punchline. And I wonder if you kind of, if multiple times when I would read through the whole book trying to get a sense of it, I'd get to this very end and think, huh, is that it? Is that the punchline? It's kind of similar to how one of the things we're working on in our house is we're working on the art and the craft of telling jokes. And so our oldest, Maddie, is really into joke telling. And so we're trying to to, uh, learn how to break them down structurally and we're trying to come up with original jokes. So, like, here's a Maddie Mae original. What is the beach's favorite city? Huh? San Diego. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And so the way we're trying to work them out is we start with the punchline. And then, so she thinks of a word that can have two meanings. So, okay, like the number one, it can mean, the, the, or it can mean one. But you can also use one, like we won the game. And then we try and work out, is there some way we can get to there where you think, yeah, you, you, get the, you get how jokes work. But her siblings are really into this, and they're not quite getting the logic yet, but they really want to tell jokes. And so if you want like a fun 30 minutes, you can just ask Benjamin to tell you a joke, and he'll start everyone with the preference. Okay, I have a joke. And then he'll just start rolling. And so like he's got this whole cycle of animal jokes, and they're all, what is a pig, cat, cow, dog, chicken? What's their favorite movie? And you know what the punchline is every time? Star Wars. (laughs) And it makes his older sister so mad because she'll say, he'll say, okay, I have a joke. What's the pig's favorite movie? And then, okay, all right, so she's logically trying to put it together. Okay, we got pig, we got movie, there's got to be a spin, maybe ham is going to be in there, maybe it's going to be a play on the word oinker, or maybe babe or Charlotte's Web, and it's like, I don't know what, and he'll go, Star Wars. And then he'll laugh, and his sister will laugh, and I'll laugh. I'll be like, ah, yes, winner. And he'll feel so proud of himself, and she'll get so frustrated. She'll say, that's not a joke. It's just a sentence. It's just a sentence. It's hard being the oldest. Some of you know, keeping these kids straight. And he'll get to the punchline, and she'll be like, is that it? That's not the right punchline. And you get to the very end of the book, and you think, all right, is that it? Is this the punchline? 
And then don't fly over it too fast. Notice what he says. It's fear God. Obey his commandments because he's going to judge everything. Fear the Lord. This is bringing you into the context of wisdom. One commentator said this way. It's not all, fearing the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom. What he wants to teach us here is that it's the beginning of joy. It's the beginning of contentment. It's the beginning of an energetic and purposeful life. What the preacher wishes to deliver us from are the rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness. And from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, human justice, or integrity, he wishes to drive us to see that God and in God alone, he is good and he is generous. And only such an outlook on life can make life coherent and fulfilling. Everything starts here. Fear him, love him, reverence him, and seek to obey him. So why do we want to try and be a certain kind of person? Because we want to fear him and obey him and his commandments. Why do we want our children to be certain types of children? Because we want them to fear him and obey his commandments. And then if everything you do can be shifted into that lens where it's done first and foremost for him and not others, it'll actually change how you deal with others. It can change you. It can help maybe make you a little more bolder so you can say things where you're less concerned about how, um, about what other people think of you and more concerned about what God thinks. Or it can make you a little more gracious. It can make you a little more kind and a little more gentle realizing that what he's commanded you to do is forgive others as you have been forgiven. Fear God and keep his commandments because in the end all will be judged. And this is an interesting phrase because for most of us kind of 21st century Americans who have lived a charm life, we're a little uneasy when we start talking about God as judge. And I remember hearing a talk by Mirzlaw Volf, who's a professor who teaches at Yale, and he was a part of, he had to flee uh, Bosnia and Croatia during the Slavic Civil War. And then he came and he taught at Yale, and he realized that around his kind of Western friends are very uncomfortable with this idea of God as judge. And they said, you know the reason why you're uncomfortable with this is because you've lived a charmed life. Like if you've ever actually lived through a civil war where you've seen your brothers murdered and your wives raped and you had nothing to do, there's, you had no power to respond, it's only in the light of the ultimate justice of God that you can even live and keep going. And so this actually is really good news. Because what Ecclesiastes is setting up, he's setting up that if there is no God and no judgment, then ultimately everything is meaningless. It doesn't matter. But if there is a God and there is judgment, then everything matters. Nothing is meaningless. Everything matters. Now it actually matters because you will one day stand before him and give an account. And so it matters now how you used your time. It matters how you treated your neighbors. It matters how you treated your body. The proud words you used matter and the selfless sacrifice you gave, they now matter. And so the cup of cold water you give, the tear of compassion you cried, the word of testimony you spoke, all of those things matter. See, if there was no God, then nothing matters. But if there is a God, everything matters. And the most important thing that matters is how do you respond to his son? One of the gifts of Ecclesiastes is to wake up. Wake up. The most important thing is coming. Are you ready? This actually reminds, what this preacher is saying here is very similar to what a popular 
preacher from North Carolina used to say a lot in the 1950s. You ever heard Billy Graham, often the way he would end his sermons, he'd, he'd end his sermons with a thing like, something like, now if you died tonight and you were standing before God and he asked, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? He's actually saying something very similar to what this preacher is saying here. And one of the great gifts of the gospel is that the way we stand before him complete is through repentance and faith, not through achievement and execution. What we do is we actually come before him and we confess that we actually haven't feared him and we have broken his commandments, but we can receive his son and stand in the light of his mercy and his grace. And that's what we celebrate every week as we come to the communion table. This is a table open to the Lord's family. And we celebrate and are reminded of those who come. They come by faith. And they receive His broken body that was broken to heal them. And they receive His blood that was spilled to cleanse them. So let's pray. And then we'll come to the table. Lord, we thank You for Your gifts of mercy. We thank You for Your gifts of grace. We thank you for the gift of the book of Ecclesiastes to help wake us up, to help us see what is really important and what matters in the end. So I pray for everyone who's come in here this room, into this room this morning. All of us have come with different needs and different desires and different hopes and different fears. And we all need grace in a very specific and special way. And you've promised to give the grace we need and the time we need, so I pray for uh, whatever we need that you would give it. Um, we ask that you help us be the kind of people who are open and generous. We ask that you help us to be the kind of people who stand and marvel at your goodness, and we aren't paralyzed by all the things that we don't know, but we trust you with them. We ask that you be the kind of people that, um, that you would help us be the kind of people who can put to death the the, the sinful desires in our own heart and we can bring to life all of the fruits of the Spirit so our lives are marked by peace and hope and joy and goodness. And we ask that you would do all these things through the power or in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. It's His name we pray. Amen.